One author quipped, the one thing we learn from history is that we do not learn from history. But for those who would be taught by it, listen to these words from uh, Norman Cousins, author and editor. Um, He wrote this, history is a vast early warning system. This morning I want to go back in Jewish history to the most significant moment in the life of Israel. A historical moment that every Christian should look at with intensity and longing because there are so many lessons to be learned from that historical event. I'm talking about the Exodus, an event that took place 3,500 years ago. You'll remember the event. God called a man by the name of Moses at 80 years of age to go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to give him an ultimatum. An ultimatum that demanded he give an unconditional surrender. An unconditional surrender. It came with a very heavy and daunting or else. Destruction and death would plague that country if he did not bend the knee to Yahweh. You remember the story. Indeed, there was death and destruction. And in the midst of God causing Pharaoh to bend the knee, God's people walked out of that dark place into his marvelous light. They walked through a tunnel, a tunnel of the Red Sea that was parted allowing the Israelites to, 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 to cross, a, to, to cross the, uh, the Red Sea on dry land. And that same tunnel became the death of the entire Egyptian army. Immediately, God directed his people through Moses to Mount Sinai, where God gave this nascent theocratic nation, two things, the law and the tabernacle. God gave to Moses instructions on how they were to live and how they were to worship. Eventually, they got to the promised land. After 40 years of wandering, and for 900 years in that land, they enjoyed the benefits of God's blessing. But they forgot God. Turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 32. Jeremiah 32. Find verse 30. Indeed, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah have been doing only evil in my sight from their youth. For the sons of Israel have been only provoking me to anger by the works of their hands, declares the Lord. Indeed, this city, speaking of Jerusalem, this city 
has been to me a provocation of my anger and my wrath from the day they built it, even to this day, so that it should be removed from before my face. And so God in his providence removed the northern tribes of Israel, scattering them at the hand of the Assyrians because they didn't take God seriously. Having been liberated from the darkness, they continued to walk in the darkness. It took another hundred years, a little bit more, before God sent the southern tribe of Judah into exile. He exiled them to Babylon. And then there was another exodus, another bringing out of darkness into God's marvelous light. And it was that time that the Israelites decided under the capable, competent, careful leadership and instruction of men like Ezra the priest to be serious with God, to take his Sabbath seriously, to take the the feasts and the festivals that were required for every male Jew seriously. And between the Testaments, between the final writing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, in that intertestamental period, the Jews were serious about learning from their history. And they took steps. They established traditions that would teach the people about their history. Among those lessons that they learned was the importance of the Feast of Tabernacles, as well as the other feasts. Tabernacles was a feast where the Jews commemorated physically, spiritually, mentally, what took place as they wandered in the wilderness after the Exodus for 40 years. During that week-long feast, they lived in tents, booths, tabernacles. They camped outside all week long. And there were a number of things that the, uh, that the Jews instituted during that, during that intertestamental period of time to, to teach people what God was doing. Turn with me to um, the book of Numbers, Ch- chapter 9. Here's one thing that, the God, that God did. Uh, Numbers chapter 9, uh, beginning of verse 15. Now, on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the the tent of the testimony. And in the evening, it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously, the the cloud would would, would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted over the tent, afterward, the sons of Israel would then set out And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. So during this entire 40-year period of time, the Israelites had this, this delightful demonstration of God's presence, his presence among the people. In the morning, it appeared as though, or throughout the day, beginning in the morning, It appeared as a a cloud that covered the tent of meeting that was at this point outside the temple or outside of the camp. And at night, it was like the appearance of fire. We, We traditionally talk about a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Think of it in this way, as a torch. It wasn't just a nightlight that God provided. It was a floodlight that illuminated the camp. 
It was a reminder that they had been called out of darkness. They were to live in the light of the living God. Now you remember a couple of, one of the traditions that the Israelites uh, uh, enacted or created for the people during the time of, of tabernacles. I, I've mentioned it before. Um, it, it was uh, a, a giving thanks to the Lord for, for his abundant provision during that time of wandering, providing water through the rock, remember? And the priest would take water from the pool of Siloam and he would put it in a golden pitcher and he would walk uphill to the temple. He would pour that, that uh, pitcher of water out on the altar of burnt offering. It's a picture of Christ. It's a foreshadowing of Christ, um, a, a type of Christ. On the seventh day, you remember, the priest did the same, gathering the water in the golden pitcher, marching up to, to uh, the temple. He walked around the, burnt, the altar of burnt offering seven times. And then, to the, to the shouts of the people, he lifted that bowl as high as he could, high and lifted up, and it was poured out beautiful picture of Christ. There was yet another um, picture of Christ, another type of Christ, another foreshadowing of Christ in the traditions surrounding the tabernacle, or, uh, the, surrounding the Feast of Tabernacles. The, the, the Jews would, would um, um, erect every, right before the feast, four giant candelabras that, according to some writers, was as tall as the tallest uh, walls of the temple. They were erected in the court of women, very, very popular place for, for uh, Jews to congregate and uh, for Jesus to, to teach. Uh, these, these giant candelabras that stood well above the people were lit every night. They were filled, uh, fueled with olive oil. Each, each container um, was, held 17 gallons of oil. They were, they were filled every day by, by ladder-climbing young priests. And they were lit so that they were, were illuminated Jerusalem and all the surrounds all night long. The Mishnah describes um, the, the celebration that would ensue during this feast. Quote, Men of piety and good works used to dance before them with burning torches in their hands, singing songs and praises, and countless Levites played on harps, lyres, cymbals, and trumpets, and instruments of music, unquote. So in this great celebration, there was was a, a, a delightful recognition, anticipation of God coming in light. He provided light. It was a, a, a reflection of his presence, but this continual light chasing away the darkness was something that God would be doing for his people forever. And, and there is, there is this, this scriptural ex, expectation. Um, Isaiah chapter 60, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light. Malachi chapter 4, For you will, who fear my name, the sun of righteousness, S-U-N, the light, of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Micah chapter 7. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. And so David celebrates. Uh, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Job says the same. His lamp shone over my head. 
and by his light I walked through darkness. This, this hopeful anticipation, this hopeful expectation belonged to the Jews during the Feast of Tabernacles. There was light every night throughout the city. If you've been with us through this series in John's Gospel, turn with me over to uh, John chapter 7 temporarily. We're in John chapter 8 this morning, but I want you to, I want you to see something in John chapter um, 7. Verse 37, John, uh, John begins with a comment. He says, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Remember, there, there, there was this picture of, of the priest pouring out the water onto the altar of burnt offering. A picture of Christ coming from the rock. He is the living water. And Jesus says, come, all you who thirst, and I will satisfy that longing in your soul. When did this happen? Verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast. In chapter 8, the festival of tabernacles has concluded. There's no more light throughout the city, throughout not the night. It's dark. Dark has returned. And it's in this context that Jesus says, chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true, meaning... Your testimony, look at the NAS footnote, the te your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, it is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, oh, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you would knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. and No one seized him because his hour had not yet come. I divided my message this morning into two exhortations first receive the light secondly don't reject it verse 12 it begins with with that that well-known phrase in john's gospel ego emi meaning um i am it's the greek translation of the hebrew word for God's name. Remember, as, as, as God called Moses at 80 years of age to be his spokesman to deliver the ultimatum, Moses says, well, who, who shall I say sent me? In the Greek language, it would be translated, well, say, ego I me. I am. We've talked about this before. It's, it's, it's a redundant um, 
statement in the, in the original language. We, you, you don't have to have the preposition I there because it's built into the verb. So literally, in a crass kind of sense, it's I, I am. There, there's, a, there's an emphasis on the person. I am, I, I, I exist, I am that being. And Jesus, a number of times in John's gospel, claims deity for himself. He associates with Yahweh by this declaration, I am. Now, seven times in John's, John's gospel, there is a, there's a predicate that, that comes with that statement, I am. And the predicate uh, reveals uh, aspects of who Jesus is and what his mission is. So he says, I am the bread of life. That was the first we considered from John's gospel. I am the light of the world. That's the second one. Jesus says, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. Now when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's identifying with these these uh, prophetic passages, some of which I read earlier, having to do with the light and um, how, how that life, that light is present among God's people, how that light dispels darkness, how that light brings peace and security and contentment and, um, uh, and comfort in the midst of fear. Darkness has been cast away in the presence of the light. And Jesus says, I'm that one that was prefigured way back in the Exodus when you saw over the tent of meeting the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory. You, it was there in that torch. Isaiah chapter 42 Here we go. Isaiah 42, verse 6. This, this, is, this is part of, um, this is a statement that comes out of the, the so-called servant songs in Isaiah's uh, prophecy. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. This is the Father speaking to the Son. I have called you in righteousness. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. That's Messiah. That's the Christ. He is the light to the nations. in praise for the privilege of, of seeing and holding the Lord's Messiah. This is what Simeon said of Jesus. My eyes have seen your salvation, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Matthew, the converted tax collector, quoted Isaiah when he spoke of Jesus in these words. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. That's Jesus. That's the light of the world. Long ago anticipated, eagerly, expectantly um, awaited. And finally, he came. I am the light of the world. Notice the next phrase. Jesus says in verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. That last phrase I just read, will not, will, uh, he who follows me will, will not walk in darkness, says two things. It gives us a word of comfort and gives us a word of command. That word of comfort is, 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 is a word of reminding. Uh, if, if, if you are following Christ, 
You, you are living under uh, the flame, if you will. You are, you are following the cloud, following the flame. Uh, you are living in the light. You are walking in the light. And in so doing, you know that as long as you are following Christ, you are not going to stumble. You are not going to, to uh, walk down dark alleys. Your path is safe. Your path is secure. It brings great comfort, great hope, great reassurance. What happens when we're not following the light? Uh, we stumble. We trip. We skin our nose. It's also a word of command to say, um, he who follows me will not, must not, walk in darkness. From the text we read this, this morning earlier from First uh, John chapter 2, we know that, 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 um, that there is an incompatibility walking in the light and walking in darkness. You, 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 you can't have both. For somebody to be walking uh, uh, opposed to um, the, the clear text of Scripture is to not walk, in dark, not walk in the light, but to walk in darkness. And that person must not. He, he will not. If he, is, if he is to be consistent, to follow Christ is to walk in the light to walk in, in, in that way which is consistent with Christ and his revealed word to us. The word follows is, a, is, a, is in the present tense, meaning it's something that we continually do, habitually do, day in, day out, do. Always walking, always following, always seeking him always coming to him. Those who do so will not walk in the darkness. Second page of your notes. There's another phrase at the end of verse 12 that, that is, 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 a, is a little fuzzy. Um, it may be that the, the, the image of light breaks down just a skosh here. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When a person comes to Christ, they are given as a gift the indwelling Holy Spirit. Every person who has trusted Christ, come to Christ, believes in Christ, following the light of Christ, that person has all the Holy Spirit there is. You get 100% Holy Spirit. You repent, you believe, you have the Holy Spirit. Period. And he's there forever to lead, to, to guide, sometimes to kick you in the derriere because you are not following as you ought. When, when Jesus says you will have the light of life, it means that the, 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 the light of Christ by means of the Holy Spirit will be living within us. But I think it says something more than that. If I, if I could uh, have, you, have you go back to chapter 7, let me, let me point something out. Um, a, a lesson that we learned from chapter 7. Uh, we, we, we looked at verse 37 before. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And Jesus says in verse 38, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. In other words, the person who comes to Christ and believes in Christ, drinks from Christ, from that person will flow rivers of living water. In other words, God doesn't just call us unto himself to save us, but he also uses us in that process of making other people thirsty for living water. And from you will flow rivers of living water to wash over the lives of unbelieving people around you that they might come to Christ. 
In the same way, same kind of lesson, when Jesus says, you will have the light of life, I think he's saying also that we will have the light of life in us to that degree that we will reflect, albeit imperfectly, the light of Christ to a darkened world around us. Listen to the testimony of Scripture. Colossians chapter 1. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Rescued us from the domain of darkness. 1 Peter chapter 2. You were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Philippians chapter 2. Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Step one. Through repentance and faith, I drink deeply from Him who is the living water. Another image, same idea. Through repentance and faith, I come to look at Him who is light. And in so doing, the darkness is chased away. I am no longer a slave. I've been liberated. I've been made free. And in that process, I am given the Holy Spirit. I have the light of life within me, and that light radiates around me just as that living water flows from me so that I have been blessed to be a blessing. Don't be a selfish snob. If you've been given light, if you've drunk deeply from the rivers of living water, share it. Give it away. It's not just yours to keep. Oh, it's yours to keep. But it's not just yours to keep. In verse 13, the religious leaders, specifically identified here as the Pharisees, come to Jesus not interested in what he said, but... They give a lame excuse of not listening, not looking, choosing to be okay with blindness by pushing a, a, a legal technicality into the equation. The Pharisee said to him, verse 13, You are testifying about yourself. Your, your testimony is not true, your testimony is not valid. Of course, they're going back to Mosaic Law, um, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, that says that on the basis of two or three witness, two or three witnesses is a matter established. You've got to have two or three witnesses. And the Pharisees are saying, well, we, we, can't, we can't even listen to you, Jesus, because you're only talking about yourself. And you're the only one that's talking about yourself. You don't have any other witnesses. Oh, dear. I'm amazed at, at Jesus' patience and his long-sufferingness. You remember when we were in John chapter 5? John chapter 5 begins by, by saying that there was a feast in Jerusalem. 
we don't know which feast exactly he was talking about, but scholars think that Jesus was talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, which would have been exactly a year prior to the Feast of Tabernacles, specifically identified in chapter 7, and which we have, have concluded and we're living in the afterglow of chapter 7 in chapter 8. It was there in chapter 5 that Jesus dealt with this very same objection, same song, second verse, when he presented to the religious leaders at that time, you remember, four other witnesses to the truth of who he is that verified, corroborated, demonstrated again in different ways from different people, different sources, that Jesus is indeed who he says he is. That he is none other than God. Of course, they sought to take his life because of that and, and because he healed on the Sabbath, you'll remember. But Jesus, at that point, gave the witness of John the Baptist. He gave the witness of his works, those sign um, uh, uh, miracles that signified who he was. He gave the witness of the Father. He gave the witness of Scripture. They didn't accept any of it then. Chapter 8. Didn't accept any of it this time either. And said, oh, your testimony about yourself is, is not valid. Can't be accepted. Well, Jesus addresses their objections. And he says two things. First, he is qualified to speak of who he is as opposed to the religious leaders who were clueless. Look at verse 14. Jesus answered them and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, it's valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. Jesus says, I am able to speak of who I am because I know where I've come from, I know why I'm here, I know where I'm going. Jesus is following the roadmap. He came from heaven to earth, from the earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave back to heaven. Jesus knew exactly where he was going, where he was from, why he was here. So, so he, he has, he has a, a place to, to, to speak of who he is and, and what all this is about. The religious leaders, on the other hand, had no ability to to speak to, to any of these things because they had no idea where he came from. They had no idea why he was there. They had no idea where he was going. Jesus' testimony is valid because he knows the facts in the case, and they don't. Verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it. Now, Jesus, uh, chapter 3, did not come for judgment. He He said to Nicodemus, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. That was his mission. That's why he came. But he says here in verse um, uh, 14, uh, 15 of, of um, uh, I'm sorry, 16. <laughs> verse 16 of chapter 8. Uh, uh, even if I do judge, 
if I had that as my responsibility right now, um, my, my, my judgment is true. Why? Because he has the right methodology. First, Jesus has the right knowledge. Second, he has the right methodology. And the methodology is to gain all of the facts. He wanted, and, and he would, his judgment, if he were to be uh, in, in judgment mode, he will be in judgment mode, but he's not right now. He came to seek and to save the lost right now. But if he were in judgment mode, his, his judgment would be right, it would be true, it would be fair, because he knows all of the pieces, all of the facts in the case, of every case. Religious leaders did not. Um, they, verse 15, judged according to the flesh. M- meaning, they were uh, only going to accept that kind of evidence that they could see, taste, touch, and feel. They weren't going to uh, uh, allow for, buy into any kind of additional evidence that went beyond that. Spiritual evidence, scriptural evidence, wouldn't entertain it. Well, if you're not going to look at all the facts, you cannot judge justly, fairly. If Jesus were to judge, it would be fair. Um, Verse 17 uh, the second, second uh, way that Jesus addre- addre- addresses the objection of the Pharisees, he, he's qualified to bear testimony to himself. Secondly, um, his testimony of himself is duly corroborated. Verse 17, in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. Isn't it interesting that phrase that he uses? In your law, is he um, stepping outside of, of uh, his Jewishness to point to uh, the Mosaic law. He certainly fulfills the law in every detail. Or is Jesus poking them because they have added to Mosaic law with their rabbinic law over and over again. Not exactly sure what Jesus' intention was there, but the, the fact stands, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, that you've got to have two or three witnesses to establish a matter. Now, Jesus has already gone over this with probably many of these religious leaders we got the testimony of uh, John the Baptist. We have the testimony of Jesus' works, the Father, the Scriptures. But here he just s- speaks of the Father. I am he, verse 18, who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they're saying to him, verse 19, where is your Father? Ah, see, they're, they're, they're looking for something material, something they can see and taste and touch. But the Father is a spirit being, and they're unwilling to even consider that evidence. Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury and they were fuming mad. That's not in the text, by the way. But but that's certainly what happened. (laughs) Yet, no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. There, There was a restraining by the Holy Spirit that did not allow them to fulfill the anger, uh, the hostility that they showed toward Jesus at this moment. By way of application, 
I, 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 want, I want us to, to learn from history. There is, um, there is an early warning system right here that we need to take full advantage of and heed. I want you to note two things. First, I want you to note Jesus' patience and long-suffering. He dealt with these Pharisees on this very same issue before, and yet he was patient with them. He was long-suffering with them. He endured them. He spoke to them kindly. He spoke words of truth in love to them. even though they returned to the vomit of their old objections, Jesus addressed their objections. You know, he, he does the same to, to me and to you. When we aren't walking in the light, when we're groping again in the darkness when we've wandered intentionally because because we we just want to when we when we walk down a dark alley Jesus is patient long suffering wanting us to come back into the light to repent, to, to seek his forgiveness. He is gracious. He is perfect. He is just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's patient. But there is coming a time when the game clock reads zero and his patience expires. And there is no more patience. Acts chapter 17. Paul is before the Athenians on Mars Hill. And he says this to these curious but uncommitted men. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This guy, all dead, now all alive. God has appointed to be the judge. There is coming a time when God's patience will expire. Today, my friends, is the day of salvation, and it is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. Exclamation point. Period. Another exclamation point. Second thing I want you to note. I want you to note the Lord's expectation. He expects his people to continually, habitually, every day, day in, day out, in season, out of season, always, from now in eternity, to follow him who is the light, to walk in his light. There is embedded in that expectation a command to surrender without condition. Let me take you back into American history for a moment. I began looking at the history of the Jews with regard to the Exodus. Let me, for just a moment, spend a little bit of time talking about American history with regard to the Second World War. 
There's some that argue that the Second World War in the Pacific began in 1931 when Japan invaded and occupied Manchuria, Northeast China, Southeast Russia. It was on December 7th, 1941, 10 years later. That day of infamy, as FDR said, where the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. That's when the war in the Pacific officially started. It was on that date that the president and the, the legislature uh, declared war on Imperial Japan. Three days later, though there had been lots of things brewing up to that point, three days later, Mar uh, four days later, I'm sorry, uh, December 11th, 1941, Hitler and Nazi Germany declared war on the United States. We responded on the same day. They're declaring war on Germany and Italy. Now, in between, and, and, and during the, uh, the years of the war, there was untold suffering and destruction and death. But the point of this very brief recap is to get us to the ending. So let me move from the beginnings of that war to its conclusion. In May of that year, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I haven't told you what year. <laughs> in May of 1945, uh, no, I'm sorry, in April uh, of 1945, April 30th, um, Hitler committed suicide. Three days later, the Germans surrendered Berlin to the Red Army. And the war in Europe officially ended May 8th, 1945, VE Day. Now, progress had been made in the Pacific, um, but the Allies uh, uh, had, had, had not yet passed through the tunnel. They, they, they saw uh, the light at the end of the tunnel, but they, they hadn't traversed that tunnel and stepped around the landmines that were still there. On July 26, 1945, same year, July 26, representatives from the United States, Great Britain, and China signed the Potsdam Declaration, which was a call to uh, the imperial Japanese to an unconditional surrender of all Japanese armed forces. And here's the or else that was embedded in the document, quote, or else the alternative for Japan is prompt and utter destruction. Signed July 26, 1945. Under the signature of then-President Harry Truman as uh, Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces, there was a mushroom cloud over Hiroshima on the 6th of August, 11 days later, 1945. Though Japan had been called to surrender unconditionally, they refused. Sounds vaguely familiar. Let my people go. No. Something happened three days later, the 9th of August, 1945, that finally brought Japan to their knees. There were two events. The first came from an unsuspected source. The Russians and the Japanese had a, 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 an agreed neutrality pact that they had signed in 1945. 
that served their both uh, served both interests. We're going to stay out of each other's affairs. But on the 9th of August, 1945, the Russian army broke that pact and invaded Manchuria. Japan knew they were surrounded. And on that same date, there was another mushroom cloud, this one above the city of Nagasaki, complete and absolute devastation. And against their will, finally, Imperial Japanese signed an unconditional surrender. My friends, there are many unbelievers in this world who do not yet understand that there is coming a day, a time, an hour, where they will be forced to their knees in an unconditional surrender. We read about it in the book of Philippians. Chapter 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, even those that are chafing, those that are angry, those that are hostile toward the living God, every knee will bow in an unconditional surrender to God. But today, today is the day of grace, of mercy, of patience. Today we have the, the privilege of choosing to bow the knee and to follow Christ to divest myself of, of any other interest, any other value, and to say, Jesus is more important to me than any other thing or any other person or any other idea. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come to me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is the call of Christ. Walk in the light right now. Submit to him. Come under his lordship. Walk in the light. Our blessed Father, we thank you for your patience and your long-suffering that brings us here to this moment. We don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen next week or next year. But we have this moment. And I pray that as your Holy Spirit moves, convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment, that you oppress us, urge us to remember our history, to remember what happened to Pharaoh, to remember what happened to the imperial Japanese, to remember what will happen to every person of every age at the end of time. We will bow to the living Christ. He is Lord.
thank you for your goodness to us. Move upon us that we might bow the knee and follow him who is the light.